Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Patty Yumi Cottrell. Okay. Um, okay. Sorry. That's okay. I'm so not good at No, it's annoying. I don't know. Um, We're all just getting by. Yeah, everybody's just doing the best they can. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, I told Amina that five people would come and that we would sit on the floor in a circle. So thank you for being here. Um, this book is um, a novel about a woman who receives the news that um, her adoptive brother has killed himself. And um, she decides that she needs to go home to Milwaukee to investigate. And um, it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> So, I don't know, but I think it's funny. Um, yeah. So, anyway, in the, it's like her um, uncle calls her to give her this news. And I don't like reading the first chapter because um, it's very chaotic and there's like people talking on the phone. And I don't know, it's just really hard to read that. And um, the other thing about this book is it's very relentless. So it's kind of hard to read. And I've never read this before in front of anyone. So just bear with me and. I don't know. I hope I can do a good job for you. Um, so I'm just going to start pretty early in the book so you can get a feel for the character. Um, at, the time of his, at the time of his death, I was a 32-year-old woman, single, childless, irregularly menstruating, college-educated, and partially employed. If I looked in the mirror, I saw something upright and plain, or perhaps hunched over and plain. It depended. Long, long ago, I made peace with my plainness. I made peace with piano lessons that went nowhere because I had no natural talent or aptitude for music. I made peace with the coarse black hair that grows out of my head and hangs down stiffly to my shoulders. One day, I even made peace with my uterus. Living in New York City for five years, I discovered the easiest way to distinguish oneself was to have a conscience or a sense of morality, since most people in Manhattan were extraordinary thieves of various standings, some of them multi-billionaires. Over time, I became a genius at being ethical. I discovered that it was my true calling. I made little to no money as a part-time after-school supervisor of troubled young people with the side work of ordering paper products for the toilets. After my first week, the troubled people gave me a nickname. Hey, Sister Reliability, what's up? Bum me a cigarette, suck my dick. They never stopped smoking or saying disgusting things to me, those troubled young people living and dying in Manhattan, sewer of the earth. I was living and dying right next to them, all the while attempting, all the while attempting to maintain an ethical stance as their supervisor, although some days I, I will admit it was difficult to tell who was supervising whom. In theory, I've always been interested in the idea of ethical practices, how to live, what to do, so to speak. Being interested in something is partially how I cultivated my talent and genius because I wasn't born this way. I was born instead with no natural talents or capacities. I was born as a shabby little baby, but after a long and unremarkable time, I became a virtuous woman. I transformed myself into something good. And one byproduct of this particular nature was behavior that seemed to land mostly on the ethical side of things, and at worst, the retiring and overly apologetic side. 
Pragmatic, I've always preferred to be in the background, unobserved. I preferred to play the role of the detached observer-receiver, the way one would live if one lived and spoke and shat inside a puffy white cloud, floating along above the world harmlessly like a balloon. All right. So I can't really look up when I'm reading this, because if I look up, the sentences are so long. Like, if I look up, I'm going to lose my place in the sentence. So that's why I'm not looking up. Generally, I would, like, look up and smile or something, but I can't look up because it's, like, these sentences, if I lose my place, you know, it's just going to be really hard for me. So that's why I'm not making any eye contact. Sorry. It's really awkward. I'm sorry. Um, so this next part I'm reading, she's on the airplane flying from New York City to Milwaukee. And there's just this part where she's talking about a sweater. And it's because she ordered this funeral sweater and she's really excited about it. So just so you know, that's just part of it. Um, all right. When I woke up, I noticed some of the stewardesses were wearing latex gloves, lightly powdered, and the powder traces could be seen dusted faintly across their shoulders and shirt sleeves. If someone studied the traces, if someone put the traces under a microscope, perhaps they would detect a pattern that would unlock the secrets of the universe. I stretched my legs out as far as possible, then began to shift my attention to the purpose of my trip. To find out what happened to him, I said to no one. In other words, to investigate his suicide, to investigate the loss of a will to live, demystify the pattern and demystify the death. I felt weeping in my eyes. I sniffled. The man sitting next to me asked if I needed a tissue. I'm not crying, I said as I accepted it and dabbed my eyes gently. It's just allergies. Don't worry. He had already turned his attention away to the in-flight magazine. As I sat there with my weeping, I thought it might be a mis. It might be a mistake to expect to come away with an understanding of what happened. It might be a trap. I prepared myself to be satisfied with uncertainty, even though I hated things that were uncertain or ambiguous. I disliked clouds, fog, certain types of philosophy, little children, and poetry. I preferred the concrete, the absolute, fiction and nonfiction, because life is not poetry. Life resembles fiction. Life resembles the writing of the Greek tragedians, those foundational thinkers. You're not flexible enough, my adoptive father once told me. Life is going to be very difficult for you, Helen, unless you learn to adapt to changes. Be flexible. Be a better person. Be a better daughter. The stewardess gestured at me. Ma'am, seat's in an upright position. Everyone always called me ma'am for some reason. I'm 32, I said under my breath. <laughs> I stared out at the gray and brown flat grids laid out simply and locked together like pieces of a child's puzzle. Then I looked down at the lake, glass smooth like a French bistro tabletop. I pictured my adoptive parents' house, and for a moment I pictured the black sweater's arrival in a cardboard box addressed to Helen Moran. It was with great pleasure that I pictured myself trying on the sweater, a perfect fit. Then I remembered I was going to my childhood home for horrific reason. My eyes continued to water until the plane landed and I took a taxi home. I've I've never paid too much attention to interstitial spaces, like the space between landing and arriving, bland, forgettable spaces without texture, oatmeal spaces. I knew the ride home would take 20 minutes, and during that interstitial space, the sky became darker and darker, as if someone were slowly placing a black blanket over my eyes. 
My stomach trembled, saliva welled up inside my mouth. I swallowed it. I tried to trick myself into thinking I just sipped a glass of spring water. A teacher said to do that. Instead of letting us go get a drink of water, she told us to think of a Swiss mountain stream and to swallow our saliva. The taxi crawled forward like a beetle through the suburbs, stopping and starting, and I saw in my head the nunnery where all the nuns died and the priests took over, the pharmacy that housed a child pornography ring, the bird sanctuary where a governmental agency collects the geese to feed to wolves. It had been years since I had been to my childhood home to see my adoptive parents. It was by some unspoken agreement that as my adoptive parents and I became older, we would come into contact less and less, although I couldn't say for certain why that was. I didn't even tell them I left until months after the fact. At the time, it satisfied me to do that to them. To disappear for a while felt like getting some kind of revenge, because throughout the 18 years I lived with them, they each on various occasions asked me to leave, to move out and find a new place to live. In the end, I suffered from my revenge, because when I moved to New York, unspeakable things happened to me. Everything bad went around in a circle. Gray streets and black skies filled my head like heavy stone tablets, causing me to feel a throbbing pulse near my left temple. In the pitch-black darkness, I felt the taxi coast down the hill of my childhood memories, causing tears to come to my eyes. A physical descent that must have been buried deeply in my subconscious, and so we arrived at my adoptive parents' house, the house of Moran's. I don't want to be here any longer than you, and therefore I'm hoping my stay will be very brief, I said to the driver as I gave him two wrinkled 20s. I asked for change. When traveling, it's always useful to have a little cash. The taxi left, and I stood for a while outside the house. It began to rain. In silence, I walked around the backyard, through the oak trees and bushes, as a few motion detector lights switched on and swept across my lone figure at a delay. By the time I made my way to the front door, my coat and shoes and canvas suitcase were soaking wet. I rang the bell and the door opened. I was greeted by two little astonished ghost figures clinging to each other for dear life. Helen, my adoptive parents said, we weren't expecting you. They were taken aback. No, it wasn't entirely clear to anyone, not even to the two who had raised me, how I had ended up at the front doorstep of my childhood home. They appeared to be shocked by my canvas suitcase. Instead of greeting me pleasantly, they were whispering to each other. How was it that no one was certain Sister Reliability would return home after her very own adoptive brother passed away? I might have been a monster, but not that kind of monster. It hurt me a little that my adoptive parents were not expecting me, that they were so astonished by my arrival, that they seemed scandalized by my suitcase, by the suggestion that I would be staying a few nights with them in my childhood home. I suppose if they themselves had called me, I would have been able to tell them my travel arrangements. Instead, a stranger called me, a relative I hadn't spoken with in years. How avoidant they are, I thought. They couldn't bring themselves to tell their own adoptive daughter her adoptive brother was dead. The person she grew up with, the one she was forced to take a bath with, a tepid bath before he was toilet trained, the one who pissed in the bath while she, the adoptive sister, sat calmly in a tub filled with a combination of tepid water in his urine. They didn't have the mental and emotional strength to tell her that he was gone. And not only was he gone, he did it to himself. All right, I think that's enough of that. So, thank you.
All right, this is when I come in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to talk great. to Patty about yeah. her um, cool. amazing new novel. Um, so. Um, so I, I read recently um, uh, an interview with you, a Goodreads profile, and um, you said that a reader characterized the novel as an unconventional detective story, mm-hmm. and you kind of agreed with that um, characterization, um, but you said if it was, it would, you know, Helen, the narrator, um, as a detective would be more in the lines of, like, Elliot Gold in The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. and... Um, one of the things I found funny about Helen as a detective is that um, as she begins her investigation into her brother's suicide, there's also an, an investigation being kind of launched at her, mm-hmm. at her place of employment, mm-hmm. um, where she works with tr- troubled young children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that really funny. But my question is um, pretty basic. I guess I just want to know how else you would characterize or kind of describe the novel and, and not to mm-hmm. not to set it in stone or put limits around it, but just to kind of think about what it's doing as a novel, you know, what it looks like. And, yeah. yeah. I think it's a dark comedy, and... Um, it's kind of like a brick that actually is made of foam and like if you threw it in a window it would bounce off the window and it wouldn't break the window mm-hmm. it's kind of like that type of brick um, yeah. you know the brick <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I think so I picked it's up like one of those bricks like that. it's a brick that it's a prop it's like a, it's not a real brick it's a fake brick so it looks like I mean from the description it sounds like it would be this really dark like a really dark like I don't know it just you know suicide it's about suicide and I read somewhere that John Cale told Nico that you can't sell suicide so I don't know this book is about (laughs) suicide and we're trying to sell it but basically I think you can if it's like funny and I think this book is really funny Mm Yeah, and I I think so. It's funny. It's a fake brick. It's a dark comedy. Um, a lot of my writing before this book, it's kind of hard to describe. It's like sort of, it's not experimental, but it's just really hard to describe to people. And I knew with this book, I wanted to write something that I could describe to people. So. I could say it's a dark comedy. If a relative's like, what are you writing? I'm like, it's a dark comedy. And they're like, yeah, we know what that is. So then it's really cool because you can communicate with these people that don't understand the other writing, but they get the dark comedy. So Mm -hmm. that was the goal, to write something that anybody could understand, even my relatives. And um, yeah, dark comedy. It's Mm -hmm. a dark comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very funny, and um, I laughed a lot reading it, and um, sometimes even in moments where I felt I shouldn't be laughing because something very sad and empty was happening, and um, you reference, you know, you reference in the beginning, the, the Uncle Jeff calls Helen and um, tells her that her brother has, has killed himself, and... Um, She's taking it in, and there's this, this this kind of amazing description of his voice sounding like I'm going to get this wrong, but like a hun- hundred rusty needle tips um, scraping against something, and it sounds like this wail, and it's kind of haunting her. And then she just yells out, "Where are they?" Um, and you don't know who she's. For, I didn't know who she was talking about, and you know, Uncle Jeff doesn't know who she's talking about, but she means um, her adoptive parents. And um, and I laughed in that moment, and I'm like, oh, I'm laughing in this moment in which 
Helen finds out that her, her brother has died, you know, but it didn't stop the moment from feeling sad or empty. Hmm. Um, that, for me, that, uh, you know, it, it didn't cancel it out. I, um, and it often the, the humor of the book seemed to come in kind of and land right on top of the tragic part, mm-hmm. that there wasn't this separation, um, that, the, you know, there, there was like no feeling of, the, the laughter didn't relieve anything for me. There wasn't like this feeling of resolution or something, you know, of something being resolved, or, yeah. you know, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, um, yeah, I think the humor and tragedy, it's really hard to separate them out because they're kind of woven together in the same fabric. So if you like undo one, the whole thing unravels. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like it's just part of the same cloth, you know, like. I don't know if they're that separate for me, but I do know. Like, yeah, I wondered that if when you were writing, if you yeah, experienced them that together. Or... Honestly, and I think this might make me sound really monstrous, but like I thought the book writing it was really funny. Mm-hmm. I was laughing most of the time as I was writing it. Yeah. You know? I mean, once you get over the phone call and you know the brother's dead, I think I think the narrator is very funny and. Mm-hmm. I was laughing at it. I mean, laughing at her and laughing with her. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I need to be careful because sometimes there are times I was laughing at her, and that's when I was like exerting too much of my my position as a writer. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's okay to make fun of your character sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know when you're mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you you also said in that same interview that um, you wanted to write this combination of the Larry David Show and Murder She Wrote, and I've I've seen yeah. the Larry David Show yeah. a lot. I'm not seeing Murder She Wrote, but I just yeah. wondered well, what have you is. Seen Murder She Wrote? No, I've never seen oh, it, so I don't. Never kn- seen it. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I was thinking you know, of like Murder She Wrote on acid or something. Yeah. You know, like drugged out and trippy, but no, that's not the book that I wrote. But I definitely <laughs> the theme song like Murder She Wrote is something I watched with my grandmother and like that theme song is in my brain and it's never going to exit my brain it's always going to be in there and I listened to that song hundreds of thousands of times as I was writing this book so it has this jaunty cheerfulness like the song does and you know like Jessica Fletcher, she wants every... I mean, how does she actually solve any mysteries? I don't understand. She has no detective skills, but she's very cheerful and kind to people, and that somehow... She solves the mystery every day. Like, I don't understand how she's doing this. (laughs) So, like, there's that. But Larry David, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, I love... I just love that show because he is so self-absorbed mm-hmm. and he ruins things for everyone yeah, and he doesn't yeah. care he doesn't care about what he's done and I think that you know you have to be I find myself I have to be like careful not to do that to people you know like I don't want to ruin anybody's life and I find myself like restraining myself sometimes like but he never restrains himself and yeah. every episode it's a new episode and everything's back to normal it, it, and nothing has any consequence in that show you know mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah. What do you think? Have you seen that show? Um, the Larry David show? Yeah, I've seen it. I yeah. mean, it's been a while, but I agree with that. He yeah. kind of, he does, you know, he ruins people's lives and yeah. doesn't care. I can see yeah. that a little bit in Helen. I mean, one of the other things I was thinking about in terms of um, Helen and the other characters in the novel is that um, 
most people aren't nice to each other in the novel, so like uh, the other characters aren't necessarily kind to Helen, including her adoptive um, parents and family. Um, she's not necessarily nice to them either, but her parents ask her to do these absurd and kind of horrific things. So, you know, like when the extended family shows up for the funeral, um, Helen's adoptive mother tells her that she has to sleep in her brother's bedroom, which is kind of horrifying to Helen at first. Um, And then the day of the funeral, you know, um, Helen's adoptive father wants her to pick up posters, uh, like with pictures of her brother um, uh, before the funeral and to take his car, you know? So it's like, you know, like putting her in these horrible positions. Yeah. Yeah. Has anyone ever seen a poster at a funeral of the person that died? (laughs) Like, I don't know if that's normal or not, but it's something I pictured. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Um, It's just something I imagined. So... Yeah, it is really cruel. There yeah, is this there's cruelty. Yeah, I thought of this kind of comic cruelty there, you know, but at the at the same time, um there are these like this character Steve who she's well, we don't meet Steve, but Steve is a friend of Helen's in New York. Yeah. He texts her, "How are you?" and she just feels this like flush of kindness, you know, cuz no one ever asks her right. how she is, but then kind of immediately she decides not to respond because it'll be more mysterious that way, you know, like <laughs> not to respond to his text or um there's yeah. um Zachary Moon, who seems to want to have a conversation with Helen about, you know, about her brother's suicide, and she just doesn't seem interested in the conversation, but she wants to talk to Thomas. Thomas, meanwhile, thinks she's weird and doesn't want to, you know, so it's, there's also, like, this comic disconnection, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the characters are kind of talking past each other, and I, yeah, I don't know. Um, Yeah. That definitely happens yeah. in the book. And I yeah. think that's kind of just what happens a lot every day, you know, with the way people talk to each other, you know, like family members. And I think it's heightened, too, because because of the tragedy, you know, that's at the center of the book. Everything is, like, heightened and pushed to, like, this very extreme level because the fact is someone just killed themselves, like, a mm-hmm. few days ago, you know. So every these things that seem very mundane and they happen all the time, like... I mean, people stop responding to other people all the time on text messages. You know, like, it's just yeah. very normal. Like, it happens to a lot of people. It's never happened to me, but it's happened to... <laughs> no. People tell me I'm unforgettable, so it's never happened to me. It's just happened to other people. Yeah, but, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what about... I just wanted to maybe turn a little bit to... Um, just your writing of the book and you and I have spoken a little bit about digressions in writing the book and um, maybe how that led to the book's form. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about digressions and form either together separately or, you know, yeah. Um, Digression is something that I really like reading. I, I really like reading books that are digressive, like Thomas Bernhard is someone that I really love because his work has this rhythm and yet like you never know like where the narrative like the voice is just spiraling out of control and it's also really repetitive it's like the same spiral it's not like different spirals it's just the same spiral up and down that's gross I don't know um but it just seems really gross sorry but the thing is like there's that spiral it's repetitive and yet 
it doesn't follow this linear progression that I, I guess mm-hmm. I just really dislike. I think it's because like a long time ago, someone told me that um, they said like I don't know how to write a story. And they said so, you didn't know. Yeah, how to yeah, write a story? Mm-hmm. yeah. And I was very vulnerable, and that really hurt my feelings because I don't know. It's just a weird thing to say. But they, the person showed me the triangle, you know, like the triangle, uh, yeah. of the dramatic action, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they were like, "This is how you write a story. You make <laughs> you do the triangle." And so ever since I saw the triangle, I really just was. I've always been more interested in spirals, not the triangle. Yeah, yeah, know? that makes sense. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know. Yeah. So I really like work that spirals and uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really liked the um, repetitions in, in your novel. The um, adoptive parents, adoptive father, adoptive mother, but you know that it's yeah. always that word is always, you know, yeah. present. Um, yeah. There's th- yeah. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people a good friend of mine told me to stop that. Like to why? take it. Yeah, a good friend of mine told me she read no, the No, I mean, but why? Oh, she just thought it was annoying, and hmm. also like, and it is kind of. And I don't like, think so. She's also just like it's very distancing and makes her seem really crazy. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are other people that have pointed it out. Like she never lets you forget that she's adopted or something. And. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, why should she, you know, she is adopted. Why is she going to forget that? And it's part of the way she talks and thinks and how she situates herself in relation to these other people. There's never, it's never going to be, oh, he's just my dad. It's -hmm. like adoptive father, you know. But I think that's also a thing that um, kind of relates back to Thomas Bernhard, too. Because once, like a lot, in a lot of his work, he he'll find like some kind of qualifier and then it'll just be that endlessly until the end of the book you know mm-hmm. so I think it's kind of that too mm-hmm. uh, so it's yeah I think I'm making myself like I just I make it sound like I just ripped off Thomas Burns. <laughs> <laughs> no no I don't think so I, I, I might have done I think I might have admitted that's what I did <laughs> all right all right um, well, I, and I, Sheila Hetty, I think uh-huh. too. Sheila Hetty is someone else that they, right. yeah, I think I ripped off <laughs> Sheila Hetty too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, this is this is kind of going away from the act of writing itself, and it's it's maybe cheating a little bit because I um, read this. Um, thing in Poets and Writers where you talked about walking in terms of writing, but it made me wonder um, what, you know, what things in your life kind of constitute writing for you that aren't writing or that that aren't the act of writing, but kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely not someone that writes every day. Um, I wish I could do that. Um, I just can't for various reasons, like many times, you know, I've had a full-time job and I just don't have that time. And um, so for me, actually, the part where, the period of time where I'm not writing, that's actually really important to me and that's where I do a lot of my writing in my head. I write in my head or I'll be reading things or just doing other things besides writing and that informs the writing that I do then you know like yeah Mm -hmm. so for me like walking is important and learning how to cook is important (laughs) (laughs) trying to learn how to cook Mm -hmm. and reading books and just doing other things besides writing yeah it's just very 
it's part of my process definitely and I would I think that it's also because I had this teacher who told me this was a good teacher and he said (laughs) you should read a thousand poems before you write one Mm -hmm. and that always really stayed with me so not to make writing into this like super precious act like I don't think it's that either yeah but I don't know yeah Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you one more question and then <laughs> hand it over to the audience to see if yeah. anyone has okay. questions for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I hope no one has any questions. I no. don't want to hear any questions from the audience. Don't ask anything. No, um, Tessa can ask me a question, but that's it. Um, so I heard um, that you met Stephen Malcolmus once, and if, um, Stephen Malcolmus is from Pavement, um, if you don't know. So I was just wondering what that was like. Yeah. Do people know who that is? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, in my twenties, like, and yeah, it's true. Like in my twenties, I in my early twenties, I wanted to be a musician because all of my friends were mu- musicians and artists, and they all had bands, and this was in. Milwaukee and um, at that time I didn't have that many friends just like these few friends who were musicians so when I say all of my friends I just mean like a few people (laughs) but basically these few people were musicians and uh, I wanted to be a musician so I had this four track recorder and I had one guitar and one tiny amp And, like, a Casio keyboard that had, like, a drum beat, you know. And um, so I made some songs, and he came to Milwaukee, and I, like, made this tape, and it had my own music on it, and it had one cover of Pavement on it. (laughs) It was an acoustic cover of... Which song do you remember? Yeah, I don't want to say it. It's just too embarrassing. (laughs) All you need to know is it's acoustic. It was acoustic and embarrassing. And I, he was outside, and I like went up to him, and I was really embarrassing myself. Like I couldn't talk. Like I stopped being able to talk, and um, he like was rolling his eyes at me and really (laughs) like just like what is wrong with you. basically so I gave him the tape and I was just like oh you're not gonna like this and I don't know why I did that I don't know what I was even saying why would I talk like that to him but um so it was really awkward and then months later like on his website he was like oh thank you Patty this tape is really cool and um so I guess he listened to it and thought it was cool. And I think really he just kind of felt bad for me. But um, <laughs> but I think it I think it's good because I, I was a really bad musician. Like I had no sense of rhythm and like I had like four <laughs> songs, four songs that were just the same song over and over. So because I wasn't a very good musician, that's why I started writing fiction. Mm-hmm. So right. in a way, I was a failure at music and a failure at a bunch of other things, and that's why I, I'm writing. So. so we're lucky then that you failed at music. I don't know. Yeah, I, think I wouldn't so. say lucky, but yeah, something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Some All right. of us are lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, does anybody have any questions or thoughts or anything they want to add? Hey, Patty. Hi. Um, where were you when Kurt Cobain died? <laughs> oh, do you know when he died? Was it in the 90s? 1994. Okay, in 1994, I was 13 years old. Yeah, I was in sixth or seventh grade, I think. And um, 
I think I remember listening to the radio and hearing this thing that like there's a conspiracy theory that like his wife killed him or something and that really freaked me out as like a 13 year old that scared the shit out of me and I like couldn't sleep like for a couple nights because I was like oh my god did she kill him like that's so fucking creepy you know so like it really scared me that's what I remember about that yeah yeah how did you ever hope that he loves music for that did you only know as an appendage could oh um yeah, yeah, I, I have heard it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really a big fan, but I've heard it. Do you like it? I'm just wondering if that sounds to you like the musical world. No, 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 no. I didn't know she was a musician, so that's why I think that really scared me because, like, I didn't know that she was a musician. And then later on, when I found out she was actually a musician and pretty good or okay you know I'm not a big fan but um, (laughs) I was like okay I don't think she killed him (laughs) did you have a question oh Oh, okay yeah I planted brandy I planted brandy in the audience to ask me a question because I didn't think anyone was going to ask me what Oh God. That's why I told her. I told her to ask me that question <laughs> just because I wanted to talk about what I was reading lately. And I'm reading this book by Muriel Spark, The Driver's Seat. It's really cruel. It's super dark. It's really fucked up. So if you want to read something really, really dark, that's the book. <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. Okay. Well, seems good. <laughs> This seems great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.